Let's begin. Our time will go ahead and pray, and I hope you're um, uh, in Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to cover verses 3 to 8 this evening. So let's pray together and ask for the Lord's enabling on our time. Oh, Father, use our ransom life in any way you choose. That's just what we sung, and I do pray that that is the desire of each of our hearts, Lord, that in whatever you have placed us, whatever our vocation is, whether we are wives, mothers, grandmothers, um, workers out the outside of the home, Lord, or however you want to use us, Lord, I pray that we would be willing vessels. Lord, I, I think of the words also of the song that says, all we have is Christ. Hallelujah. And Lord, in this world that has just gone crazy and so much turmoil and so many things that are going on, for us as Christians, it is such a joy to know that we have Christ. And he is enough, and he's all we need. What a joy. What a comfort. Father, bless in our time tonight. I pray that you will use it for your glory. I pray that the words of my mouth will Uh, be truthful. I pray that the meditation of our heart would be acceptable in your sight. And Lord, I do pray for clarity and I do pray for unction from your spirit. And I pray for the listeners that you would give them grace as well. And I ask these things in my Savior's name and for the glory of God in Christ's name. Amen. Well, have you ever wondered uh, what the New Testament churches looked like? And I'm not talking about the buildings that uh, they gathered in, and I'm not talking about the clothes that the ladies wore to church every Sunday or anything like that. But I'm asking the question, have you ever wondered about the characteristics of the New Testament churches? What were the things that the churches were known for? And as I was thinking about this, I thought, you know, we do have some glimpses in the word of God as to what some of the churches were like. I was thinking about the book of the Revelation and where Jesus gives the messages to the seven churches. And we have a little glimpse of what some of those churches were like. In fact, we know the church at Ephesus was known for her patience. The church at Smyrna was known for her poverty. The church at Pergamum was known for her faithfulness. The church at Thyatira was known for her love, service, faith, and patience. The church at Sardis was known for her believing remnant. The church of Philadelphia was known for her keeping of the word and not denying the name of Christ. And, of course, the church that we probably are all familiar with. In fact, the other night, my husband and I were at a singles gathering, and one of the singles in our church asked my husband, what would you describe our church like? And I think she had probably done her homework. And he said, well, the church at Laodicea. And I think she, you know, didn't know what to say with that answer. She dropped her jaw. But uh, we all know the church of Laodicea. That's the one that Christ says, you're lukewarm, you're neither hot or cold, and I want to vomit you out of my mouth. Uh, you have lost your first love. And so we know a little bit about the, the seven churches that Jesus gives a message to. We also know a little bit about the church at Philippi. For those of you that studied the book of Philippians with us, the book at um, the church at Philippi was a church that Paul loved. He longed for them. They loved Paul. He loved them. And there was a special relationship he had with them, so much so that he says, even there in prison, I long to see you face to face. I just really wish I could see you face to face. 
Also, the church at Thessalonica, we're studying Second Thessalonians here on Sunday morning. And that was a church that was known for their love, their faith, and their patience. Now, not all the churches had great qualities. I mean, you barely, if you did your homework this week, you barely get into Paul's letter to the church at Galatia. And, you know, he's a little ticked. And he says, I marvel that you're so removed from the gospel. And he even says that you're preaching another gospel and you're going to be cursed. And he says, who has bewitched you? And he comes to the end of the book and he says, I stand in doubt of you. I don't even know if you guys are saved. And so, you know, this isn't the church at Galatia is not the one you want to join next Sunday morning. They had some problems. Also, the church at Corinth. The church at Corinth was known for their strife, their divisions, their carnality, so much so that they were allowing a man in the church that was committing incest. And Paul says, get rid of this guy, get him out of your church, excommunicate him. Why? Because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Get rid of this guy. And so they were carnal to the point of allowing a man to remain in the church who was committing incest. But what about the church at Colossae? What were they known for? Well, if you were here last week, you already know that they were known for the fact that they were allowing a certain heresy to creep into the church, the heresy of Gnosticism. But thankfully, that is not the only thing the church at Colossae was known for. They were also known for some good things. Aren't you glad about that? That they were, they were allowing some bad things to creep into the church, but they also had some good things going for them. And the Apostle Paul has some commendations for the church at Colossae, and we're going to learn about those tonight. So let's read uh, Colossians 1, verses 3 to 8 together, if you would. Notice what Paul says. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love to all the saints. For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which is coming to you as it is in all the world, bringing forth fruit, as it does also in, in you since the day you heard of it and knew the grace of God in truth. As you also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf who also has declared to us your love in the Spirit. Now, as we consider Paul's commendations for the church at Colossae, our outline is going to be threefold. First of all, we're going to see Paul's thanks to who in verse 3. Secondly, Paul's thanks for what in verses 4 to 6. And then lastly, Paul's thanks for whom, verses 7 to 8. So Paul's thanks to who, Paul's thanks for what, and Paul's thanks for whom, verses 7 and 8. Now, in our introductory lesson, we discovered a couple of things. We discovered the author was Paul. We discovered that the audience was the, the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who were at Colossae. And we also considered some background information that was very important uh, in order for us to understand the book of Colossians. And I would encourage you, if you were not here last week, it would probably be a good idea for you to listen to the lesson so that you kind of have an idea of the heresy that was infiltrating the church, the heresy of Gnosticism, so that you can understand as we go through this little book together. Now, tonight, as we consider the commendations of the church at Colossae, I want to bring out something to you. I think it's very important as we start this little epistle to see what Paul does. Before Paul confronts them about the errors that they are in, he commends them. 
He tells them the good stuff that they're doing right. And do you know, ladies, that's exactly what Jesus does to the seven churches that are in Asia in Revelation? Do you know he says, I have this about you, you know, you're great about this, you're great about this, but I have something against you. And then he tells them the bad stuff. And so I think we can learn a lot from this. I know that um, I have been told often by a lady who discipled me years ago, she said, Susan, anytime you confront someone it would be a good idea to do it with a white glove, you know? And so you want to tell them the good stuff first before you tell them the hard stuff because then that helps them to receive the hard stuff you're getting ready to tell them. In fact, I remember one time I went to her house crying and bawling about something and poured out my sob story to her, and she said, Susan, as your friend, I want to tell you this. But as your sister in Christ, I'm going to tell you this, and this is what you need to do. So I was kind of hoping she'd help me, you know, as a friend, do the other stuff. But she loved me enough to tell me the truth. And so I think we can learn a great principle here. Before we're going to confront someone or lay out some things before them, it's a good idea to commend them for the good things. And we see Paul doing that here as he begins this letter. So let's consider, first of all, who gets the thanks in verse 3. He says, we give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. And so the question we want to ask as we look at verse 3 is, who is the we? We give thanks. Well, if you remember from last week, I know you have slept seven nights since then. Maybe some of you have. I have. But seven nights since then. So who is the we? Remember we discovered last week that Timothy was with Paul. He might have been there with him in prison. If not, he was at least there in the vicinity there with Paul. And so the we there is Paul and Timothy. And so together, as a ministry team, they are giving thanks. And ladies, notice who they give thanks to. They give thanks to God and the Father of their Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is important. Did you notice Paul and Timothy didn't give thanks to each other? They didn't high-five each other and say, Hey, man, we've done a good job, you know, and let's build up the church at Colossae. Let's build up their self-esteem. Let's, you know, thank them for all they're doing. No, they didn't do that. They gave God the glory. They gave thanks to God for the work that he was doing at the church at Colossae. And, you know, I was thinking about this. Probably in their minds um, was the awful judgment that fell on Herod. Do you remember Herod in Acts chapter 12? He took all the glory to himself. You know what it says about him? He was eaten of worms and he died. Because he didn't give God the glory. Now, ladies, that's a a sobering reminder, right, to give God the glory. And so Paul and Timothy knew that everything that the church at Colossae had that was on their, you know, for their good, that God had done that. Ladies, we can't take any merit of our own. Everything that you and I have is because God has given it to us. It's not of our own merit. It's not for our own glory. It's for the glory of God. And so we must remember that. Paul and Timothy did. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We haven't done anything. Paul and Timothy haven't done anything. You guys at Colossae haven't done anything. God has done everything in your life. He's responsible for the good things in your life. Now, ladies, notice the way they express their thanks to God is through prayer. Very interesting. Do you thank God for your church and for her qualities? Paul and Timothy did. 
they thank God for the church at Colossae. In fact, Paul and Timothy, notice what they say, we pray always for you. Now, ladies, imagine that you're sitting there at the church at Colossae, and this epistle is being read, and you know that Paul, sitting there in prison, is praying for you. Is that an encouragement, that the apostle Paul is sitting there in prison, and he and Timothy are praying for you? I know, I don't know about you, but I'm encouraged when people tell me, they'll say, Susan, I'm praying for you. That encourages me. And I know that it must have encouraged the church at Colossae to know that even though Paul was chained to a prisoner 24 hours a day, that he was praying for the church at Colossae. Now, when you first glance at this verse and it says that he's praying always for you, it might look that, look like that Paul and Timothy are always praying for the church at Colossae. But that would be impossible, right? Because there were a lot of other churches they prayed for too, and they had to eat and they had to sleep, so we know that can't be right. The Greek translation actually reads this. We give thanks for you always, and we pray for you. In other words, what Paul is saying here, we, when we pray for you, it is not without giving thanks. So every time we pray for you, church at Colossae, we thank God for you. Now, ladies, we can learn from that, right? We can learn from Paul. When you pray for others, do you thank God for them as well? I was thinking about this in my own prayer life. I try to pray for all my grandchildren, try to pray for all my siblings, try to pray for everybody that goes to Grace Community Church, try to pray for all the ladies I disciple. And, and But, you know, I was thinking about this. When I pray for people, I usually petition God on their behalf. Lord, you know they need this and they need that. But I find that very little of my time is spent in giving thanks for them. And I was really convicted as I was studying this passage. I need to be more thankful for the people in my life. And Paul says, every time we pray for you, we thank God for you. We give thanks to you. And ladies, I think we would do well to get in the habit of being a thankful people, especially in our prayers to God for others. Because, you know, I think if we get in the habit of being thankful, we might find that it might change our attitude about some of the people that we pray for, even those difficult people in our life, you know? And so if we start thanking God for this person, instead of complaining about this person, we might find ourselves with a better attitude. Now, since Paul says that he's praying for them, what does the word pray mean? Well, the word actually has the idea of a being direct in prayer and the, 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 and the idea that you are praying, talking face to face with God. Now, ladies, I'm sure that many times we could testify to the fact that we lack direction in our prayer as well as clearness and being exact. But that's what Paul is saying. We, pl- we pray with exactness. We play, pray with clarity and we pray with the idea that we are talking face to face with God. Now, ladies, again, that's a weakness in our prayer life, right? Uh, Many times we just pop off a few sentences to God. We don't pray with clearness or exactness. Uh, We don't stop and realize we're talking face to face with the Almighty God. And we're going to be talking about prayer in our next two lessons, but suffice to say for tonight, in my humble opinion, I think we have become too casual with God. 
And, uh, you know, we look at him more as our best best friend, our best bud, instead of God who is in heaven that should be revered. And I, I think a couple of things that can help us in our praying is, number one, get on our knees. That kind of changes our attitude when we pray. And also pray out loud. Um, those two things I have found to be very helpful in helping to be more mean be more clear in my praying and also be more reverent in my praying. But we're going to talk about that more in the next few weeks. Well, Paul and Timothy give thanks to God, and now we see what they give thanks for in the next few verses. Notice what he says in verse 4. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints. So, ladies, we're going to find in these next few verses that Paul and Timothy give four commendations for the church at Colossae. There are four of them. Now, what is the first one? What is the first good thing that the church at Colossae is known for? Notice what Paul says. We heard of your faith. We've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Very interesting word, faith. The word for faith is pistis, and it means to be persuaded that something is true and to trust in it. But it also, at the root word of this Greek word, is patheo, which means I don't just trust in something, I obey it. For example, I am trusting right now that this platform is going to hold me up tonight. You know, I was watching the news before I left, and Mexico had an earthquake today, and and some of those buildings were just rubble. They just collapsed. I'm sure some of those people working in those buildings today had no idea. Uh, you know, and I have faith tonight. We're not going to have an earthquake. And this platform is going to hold me up while I'm up here teaching. But you know what, ladies? I am not going to obey this platform. I'm sorry. This platform has no authority over me. The Greek word here, when Paul says, we've heard of your faith, it's a faith that not only believes and trusts in something, but it also has a commitment to obey. And, you know, again, we need to be reminded of this because the gospel that is taught today is just a mere what? Believe. But, ladies, the demons believe, and they tremble. They have enough sense to tremble, which is more than what most of us do. You know, faith without obedience is not faith. In fact, that's what Gnosticism taught. We talked about that last week. Gnosticism taught that. But God doesn't teach that. Consider Acts 6-7, which says this, Many of the priests were what? They were obedient to the faith. Once they believed, they obeyed. Ladies, genuine faith is not spurious, as seen in many of our churches today. John is very clear in 1 John that is one of the biggest tests of genuine faith is obedience. Did you know that? This is how we know we know him if we keep his commandments. He that says, I know him, but doesn't keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth isn't in him. And ladies, I didn't say that. God said it so you can take it up with him. Obedience is one of the first things. In fact, I was talking to a girl tonight. Uh, We were meeting before class. And I said, you know, that was one of the first things I noticed when God saved me at the age of 30. My whole direction of my life changed. I wanted to, the things that I used to do, I didn't want to do anymore. And I wanted to start obeying the Lord and and doing the things that I know he wanted me to do before I had no desire to obey him. And that's what Paul's saying. We've heard of your faith. It's not just a faith that believes something is true, that Jesus died on the cross, but it's a faith that causes you to obey. And it's interesting, ladies, out of these four commendations, that he mentions faith first. 
you might say, well, why is that interesting? Because, ladies, if there's no faith, there's no love, there's no hope, and there's no fruit bearing, right, which are the next three things he's going to commend them for. So if you don't have faith, you ain't going to have no love, and you're not going to have any hope, and you won't have fruit bearing in your life. Now, the church at Colossae was not only known for their faith, but secondly, notice what Paul says, they were known for their love. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. Now, what kind of love is this? Well, it's not phileo love. That's a tender affection. It's an agape love. Agape love is a love that gives to the person not what they are wanting, but what they need. What they need. It's like the love that God gives to us, and he showed it by what? Sending his son to die on the cross for our sins because we needed a savior, right? We needed a savior. And so he agaped us. And ladies, Paul says, we've heard of your faith and the love that you have to all the saints. And this is very important. Notice their love was to all the saints, not a select few. Remember the Gnostics that we talked about last week? They were an elite group. You know, they were in the know. And they had a love, but just for the elite, just for the select, just for the ones that were in the know. They didn't love all the saints. Just a select few. But ladies, the love of God comes in, and we don't just love a few, right? We love all the saints. Also interesting, the preposition here, which which means in two, shows that the love that the Colossians had reached into the very hearts of the other saints. Now, ladies, that is an awesome love that only God can give, that can reach down into the hearts of others. I hope that describes the love that you have towards the lady that's sitting next to you tonight. A love that can reach down into that heart. Ladies, we need to remind ourselves of what Jesus says. By this, we'll know, all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. That's the main test of genuine believers, that we love each other. In fact, you know what John says? We know we've passed from death to life if we love the brethren. So, ladies, if you want to know tonight if you're a genuine Christian, you want to know if you've passed from death to life, you know what the mark of a genuine believer is? You love the brethren. And so if you don't love that person sitting next to you tonight, if you don't love that lady sitting behind you or in front of you, then you might want to check your spiritual temperature because that's what Christ says. This is how we know what that we're in if we love the brethren. Well, there's another commendation for the church at Colossae in verse 5. And Paul and Timothy were thankful for this one as well. Notice what they, what Paul writes. Because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you've heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. So we've seen the first commendation is their faith. The second commendation is their love for the saints. The third commendation that Paul mentions about this church is their hope. Their hope that is laid up for them in heaven. Now, ladies, hope is not a word which means wishful thinking. It is a firm assurance of something. And you know what? This Greek word also means a yearning and an expectation of something. Ladies, that our hope, our hope that is laid up for us in heaven. In, fall, in fact, Paul describes this in Romans 8.24. He says, for we were saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. 
For why does one still hope for what he sees? If we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Ladies, that hope, that expectation, that thing that is laid up for us in heaven, our inheritance. In fact, uh, not today, but a couple of weeks ago, I was having lunch with Pam. I'll tell this about her because she's not here tonight. But um, if you know Pam, you know, at the end of every one of her meal, uh, uh, not meals, but her emails, it says any day now. And she's talking about the rapture, right? And um, so a couple of weeks ago, we were having lunch, and we were talking about the Blessed Hope, which is a common conversation that I have with Pam every time we have lunch together. And uh, so we were talking about the Lord's return, and she looked at her watch, and she said, um, right now would be a good time, actually. In fact, even tonight, today when I had lunch with her, she said, I'll see you tonight unless the Lord comes back before then. And so, ladies, that's our Blessed Hope, right? And we wait for it with earnest expectation, And the Colossians were known for this. They were not only known for their faith, their love for each other, but the fact that they looked forward to that blessed hope. Ladies, are you looking forward to that? Can you not wait to get to heaven? I mean, I agree with Pam any day now, right? Today would be a good day. And by the way, hope is active. Interesting word. It's active as seen by the preposition for. So it's active working in the believers at Colossae, and it energizes their faith and love to a greater intensity. Because as they realize this hope of heaven, you know, they want to occupy till the Lord comes. They want to be passionate. They want to be zealous. They want to purify themselves, even as he's pure. Because why? He's coming soon. And so that gives them energy to occupy until the Lord returns. In fact, the idea of being stored up or laid up gives a picture of being put out of the reach of all our enemies and sorrows. Isn't that great? Ladies, nothing can touch that. Nothing can touch that inheritance, that hope that we have in heaven. Satan can't get to it. Nothing can get to it. In fact, Peter reminds us of this in 1 Peter. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And listen to this. To an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, cannot fade away. Is that great? In fact, if you were here for our study on the Sermon on the Mount, you know that, you know that Jesus told us to lay up treasures, what? In heaven, where moth, rust, doesn't corrupt thieves can't break through and steal ladies that's our hope it's reserved for us in heaven no one's going to steal it no nothing's going to corrupt it well how did the colossians hear of such an incredible hope well the very same way that you heard about the hope of heaven this very same way i heard about the hope of heaven they heard it notice what paul says by the word of the truth of the gospel. The Greek word for word is logos, the spoken word. Gospel is the Greek word means to evangelize. That's how they heard about the hope of heaven. And notice what Paul says. It's the truth of the gospel. This is in contrast to the false gospel of the Gnostics, the gospel they were trying to teach them. Paul says, no, you heard about this hope of heaven by what? The truth of the gospel Lady Paul seems to be reminding them here of the gospel. Don't you remember the change that occurred in you? Do you not remember when you embrace the hope of heaven? The gospel doesn't need anything added to it, church at Colossae. Quit trying to add Christ plus this and Christ plus that. You don't need anything else. 
In fact, later on, he's going to warn them. He's going to say, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy, vain deceit, tradition of men, all these basic principles of the world. He says, don't do this, for you are complete in Christ, Christ alone. Don't let anyone steal your reward. Don't let them cheat you by these things and try to persuade you. Well, there's one more commendation for the church at Colossae mentioned in verse 6. Notice what Paul writes. This gospel has come to you as it also has in all the world, and it's bringing forth fruit as it has also among you since the day you heard it and you knew the grace of God in truth. Paul begins with an interesting phrase about the gospel. He says it has come to you, which means it is being alongside you. And actually the Greek word means it has snuggled up close to you. I like that. The gospel has snuggled up close to you. The Colossian believers had taken the gospel. It had snuggled up close to them and it was in their heart. Ladies, isn't that what the gospel does to us? You take it and you snuggle up close to you and it changes your life. I was telling again the lady I was meeting with before church tonight. I said, you know, I, my life was transformed. I mean, uh, I was telling her before, you know, I, God saved me that my husband used to say he was going to ride on my tombstone. She did it her way. So uh, the gospel hadn't snuggled up to my heart. But uh, after God, you know, saved me, my life changed. My heart changed. The gospel snuggled up in there, and I, I, I didn't want to be the old Susan Joy Heck. I wanted to be the new Susan Joy Heck, and it changes us. And Paul says, this gospel has come to you as it has also in all the world. Now, is Paul saying that the whole world has heard the gospel? No, that's not what he's saying. Because we know that Jesus says in Matthew 24 that the gospel will be preached to all the nations, and then the end will come. And we know that that hasn't happened yet. But the Apostle Paul, you know, if you've ever read any of the Pauline epistles, Apostle Paul likes to use a lot of hyperbole, you know, all the saints, all the world. And here we see him doing that. It's very similar to what he writes in Romans where he says to the church at Rome, your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Well, obviously, the Romans, their faith was not spoken of throughout the whole world. How would that have happened? Now, in our day, it could be because, you know, everyone puts something on Twitter or Facebook, and then the whole world can know about it. But in Paul's day, they didn't have social media, so that he's just using hyperbole. He's talking about the universality of the gospel. The gospel has dynamic power. It can reach the whole world. Unlike the Gnostic foolishness, which was just for a select few, ladies, Christ's good news is for all. It's for anyone who will repent and believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel was for the whole world. Now, what happens when you hear the gospel and it snuggles deep in your heart? Well, notice what Paul says. It brings forth fruit. It brings forth fruit. Ladies, this is the fourth commendation of the church at Colossae. They were not only known for their faith, their love, their hope of heaven, but they were known for their fruit bearing. In fact, the Greek word here indicates that this is a reproductive organism. You know, when you, I'm not a gardener, so Susie could probably, you know, tell you more about this than I can. But the Greek word that is used here is not talking about a seed that you plant in the ground and it brings forth some kind of a tree or plant and then it dies and it withers away and you never see it again. It's talking about a seed that is planted, and it just keeps reproducing, keeps producing, keeps bringing forth fruit. It doesn't wither 
away. And Paul says, since the day that gospel snuggled close deep into your heart, your life has been producing fruit, and it keeps on producing fruit. And ladies, again, do you know that's a mark of a genuine Christian? Fruit bearing? Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. I ordained you that you should bring forth what? Fruit. In fact, later on, he says, it's my desire that you bring forth what? Much fruit. A lot of fruit. Jesus doesn't want you just to bear, you know, little tiny berries. He wants you to bring forth a lot of fruit. You should be producing a lot of fruit. That's his desire for us. In fact, the godly man mentioned in Psalm 1, it says that he what? His leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, prosper. He brings forth fruit. He's like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth fruit in its season. His leaf doesn't wither, and whatever this man does, prosper. That's the godly man. He just goes through life producing fruit, bearing fruit for the kingdom. Ladies, just like faith without obedience is not genuine faith, faith without fruit or works is dead. James says that faith without works is dead. You don't have genuine faith. If you're not bearing fruit tonight, your faith is dead. And I didn't say that. Christ said it. You can take it up with him. Well, Paul ends with a little phrase in verse six. He says, you knew the grace of God in truth. The Colossian believers had come to know the grace of God in all its truth in comparison to the false teaching of Gnosticism. What is grace? We talked a little bit about this last week. That was one of the... the Uh, Jewish greetings that Paul used but here it's talking about the grace that God gives us to free us from our sins and to give us eternal life it's the grace that we do not deserve in fact uh, in the sister epistle we talked about this last week Ephesians is the sister epistle to Colossians and Paul mentions that there a a verse that probably most of you know for by grace are you saved through faith not of yourselves it is a gift of God not of works lest any man should boast ladies that is grace that God would save us (laughs) and Paul says you knew this grace of God in truth well How did the Colossians hear about this grace of God? Does one hear without a preacher? Nope. And that's why Paul and Timothy now give thanks for a certain individual. And we're going to see this in verses 7 and 8. As you also learn from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. Now, again, if you remember our introductory lesson, remember Epaphras, was probably the founder of the church at Colossae, more than likely the pastor of the church at Colossae, and he's the one that brought the grace of the gospel to the church at Colossae. That's one of the reasons we believe he is the pastor, because evidently he shared the gospel with them. He says, you've learned it, you've heard it from Epaphras. Now, Paul speaks very well of him. In fact, right here he mentions two things about this guy. Number one, he is a dear fellow servant. And if I was, I was kind of Thinking about this, I thought, I like that term. Maybe we should call each other dear fellow servant. Hello, dear fellow servant. Kind of cute little term. So what does this indicate? They had a very strong friendship with Epaphras. He was a dear fellow servant. Paul also says he's a faithful minister. Faithful minister. He was faithful to the calling that God had given to him. In fact, the word minister just means a servant or a deacon. And you'll really like this if you were here last week. The Greek word actually means 
in the dust, laboring or running through the dust. And you might say, well, refresh my mind from last week. Do you remember what we brought out about Epaphras? That he walked 1,000 miles from Colossae to where Paul was in prison in Rome. He actually labored in the dust, right? And we brought out last week, the average, average traveler walked 20 miles a day, and we did the multiplication. It would take this guy 50 days to walk that far. So the Greek word is kind of really interesting, running through the dust for 50 days. Um, I mean, this guy was not lazy. Um, he traveled that far. So he's a dear, felt, he's a dear fellow servant, and he's a faithful minister. He's a servant. He's a deacon. He ran through the dust uh, to get this news to Paul there in Rome. Ladies, Epaphras was not a lazy guy. He labored hard. He was faithful in his labor for the Lord. And Paul makes this clear when he says this labor was what? Of Christ. Epaphras did this because of what? Of Christ. Not for himself, not for the apostle Paul, but for Christ and the glory of God. And ladies, that should be a motive for each of us. As we go through our daily lives and we want to please the Lord and glorify him and bear fruit, we have to remember it's for the Lord, right? It's not for us. It's not, you know, it's not for any glory that we might receive. It's for the glory of God. We are to be steadfast, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Knowing our labor is not in vain in the Lord. And so I often tell myself, this labor is not in vain. Keep working for the Lord. Also, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, moreover, it's required in stewards that a man be found what? Faithful. And so we want to be faithful. And I hope one day we all will hear from our Lord, well done, good and faithful servant, right? And so we want to do what we do because of the Lord and to glorify him. Now, Epaphras is also mentioned, don't turn there, he's also mentioned in Philemon as a fellow prisoner. And so evidently at some point uh, Epaphras was in prison with Paul, we don't know when this took place, but at some time he spent some time in prison with Paul for the sake of the gospel. And most people believe that Epaphras was eventually martyred at Colossae for his faith. And other than that, we really don't know much about this guy. Um, he was a faithful servant. He labored in the dust. He you know, went a thousand miles. We do know that. He probably pastored the church at Colossae. Uh, he shared the gospel with them. He was a faithful servant. He was concerned about the heresy that was going on there in the church and he did spend some time in prison for the gospel and church history tells us that he was martyred for his faith but ladies he left a legacy for us didn't he even though we just have a little you know a few snip a little uh, snippets about him he was a faithful servant now what news did Epaphras bring to Paul and Timothy regarding the church at Colossae well verse 8 tells us and with this we close he also declared to us your love in the spirit you know Epaphras, as the pastor, must have been very impressed with the love that this church had. Because did you notice that he mentioned it twice? We mentioned it in the first verse we looked at, verse 3, and he also mentions it as he ends. The love that they had. So evidently, this, was, this church was known for their love. The love that they had to one another. And yet, they still were in danger 
of this heresy creeping into their church and sweeping many of them away. And I think that's a lesson to all of us. You know, just because we might be known, I, I know I think Grace Community is known as a very loving church. Uh, you know, we can't get puffed up and think that dangerous heresies might not creep in here either, right? And so, but evidently the church at Colossae was known for their love. And ladies, notice this love is what? In the spirit. Do you know that's the only way that we can truly love each other is by the power of the Holy Spirit that lives in us? Do you know that's the only way that you can love me and that's the only way that I can love you? It's amazing that you do love me and it's amazing I love you when you think about it, you know, because we're all weird. We all have our quirks. But you know what? By the power of the Holy Spirit, we can love each other, right? In fact, you know, Paul says in Galatians, the fruit of, now the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. That's, that's the first thing. And out of love produces what? Joy, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, uh, patience, forbearance, love, long-suffering. Ladies, we can love each other because of the dear Holy Spirit. Now, just a little side note before we close with a few remarks. Did you notice in this opening that Paul mentions all of the Trinity? Did you notice that? He mentions the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He mentioned the Father, verses 1, 2, 3, and 6. He mentions the Son in verses 1, 2, 3, 4, and 7. And he mentions the Holy Spirit in verse 8. That's just a little side note. has nothing to do with the lesson, but uh, I just something I observed as I was studying. Well, ladies, we can learn from Epaphras that he is a true servant of Jesus Christ. And you know what? He focused on the good qualities of others and not the bad qualities. I was thinking about this. You know, love doesn't keep a record of things done wrong, according to 1 Corinthians 13. And it doesn't rejoice in iniquity either. And Epaphras didn't do that. You know, it might have been tempting for Epaphras as he's coming to Paul and he's burdened about the church at Colossae. And it might be tempting for him to say something to Paul and Timothy like, you know what? I'm just not sure about these Colossian guys. I mean, they're getting caught up in all kinds of errors. Well, you know, Joseph, uh, he's an unbelievable legalist. And you won't believe it, but Sarah thinks by denying her body certain foods, she's going to gain favor with God. And then there's Stephen. I mean, you won't believe Stephen. I mean, he thinks he needs to be circumcised now. And even though he's 50 years of age, he's going to be circumcised. Can you believe it? He thinks that's going to get him to heaven. But you know what? Epaphras doesn't do that. The first thing he does as he comes to Paul and Timothy and talks to them about the church at Colossae, the first thing he does is he focuses on the things that the church is doing right before he tells them about the things they're getting involved in. He commends them for the great faith they had, the incredible love they had to each other, the great hope of heaven and their fruit bearing. So in closing... Who do Paul and Timothy give thanks to regarding the Colossians? Well, they give thanks to God. When you think of your church or your fellow believers, do you find yourself being thankful to God for them? Do you look for the good in them? Do you find things to be thankful for, especially regarding your church? You know, our temptation is to complain and murmur. But God's people should be a thankful people, and we should look for the good in others and the good in our churches. Secondly, Paul and Timothy are thankful for four things they see in the Colossian believers. Faith, hope, love, and their fruit bearing. 
If I were to ask you what four things you could commend your church for, what would they be? And lastly, Paul and Timothy are thankful for Epaphras. What a testimony to a man who delivered the good news to the Colossians who was a faithful servant of God. Are you a faithful servant of God? What peoples are you reaching out to with the good news of the gospel? Well, as we think about the church of Colossae and the things they were commended for, let's think about the church we attend and what we would be commended for. What do you think Paul and Timothy and Epaphras would say about the church you attend? If Paul was writing a letter to your church, what would he commend it for? What do others say about the church you attend? What is the reputation of your church to those who are outside of your church? Or perhaps more thought-provoking is, what would Jesus say about the church you attend? That's what's really most important, right? What would he say? What would Jesus commend your church for? What are its strengths? What are its weaknesses? What dangers are facing your church? In what ways is your church being led astray? The church at Colossae had some strengths, but it also had some weaknesses, right? But I want to focus, as we close, on their strengths. They were known for their faith, their hope, their love, and their fruit-bearing. Their focus was upward, outward, forward, and onward. Faith was their soul looking upward to God. Their love was shown by looking outward to others. Their hope looked forward to future in heaven. And their fruit bearing was manifested by moving onward in serving God and others. Ladies, I pray God will grant each of us and each of our churches that are represented here tonight to be known for our faith, hope, love, and our fruit-bearing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the church at Colossae. Thank you for the lessons that we can learn from her. I thank you for the good things that Paul commends her for. Even though this church was being led astray by a terrible heresy, they still were trying to do some things that were right. They seemed to be genuine believers with a genuine love for each other and a hope of heaven and producing fruit. And, Lord, I pray that they would also be a sobering reminder to us that even though our churches might, be, might exemplify some of these things that Paul commends this church for, that that doesn't exempt us from being swept away by heresy or heresy being allowed to be in our churches. And so, Father, I just pray that you would give us shepherds that would be wise, Lord, shepherds that would guard the flock and watch for the wolves and watch for the false teaching. Because, Lord, we're just dumb sheep, and we know that we can be led astray so quickly. So, Father, I pray that you'll give us grace, help us to be... Um, Lord, always mindful to pray for our shepherds, to pray for our churches, to be thankful. And, Lord, to do our part uh, to serve and to be faithful servants. 
And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.